Well, now, loving, gracious God, in these moments, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts together in this room be found pleasing in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, sisters and brothers, grace to you this morning and peace from the Lord Jesus Christ. In his memoir titled Salvation on Sand Mountain, author Dennis Covington tells a story, a story I shared a few Christmas Eves ago here, a story from his childhood. The book is partly about uh, a story about snake handling churches in the South, but more importantly, it's an account of growing up in Birmingham, Alabama in the 1950s, the same place and time in which my own parents grew up. Covington and his family lived in a neighborhood near a lake where many of the children would spend their days. And at the end of his memoir, he describes his experience uh, as a boy of being called home to supper in the evenings. Most children in the neighborhood, he said, were called by their mothers who would open the back door, wipe their hands on their apron and holler their names or ring bells so loud they would set the dogs to barking. But he said, I was always called home by my father. And he didn't do it in the customary way. He walked down the alley all the way to the lake. And if I was close, I could hear his shoes on the gravel as he came into sight. If I was far, I would see him across the surface of the water. He would stand with his hands in his windbreaker while he looked for me. And this is how he always called me home, Covington said. He came to the place where I was before calling my name. He came to where I was. Friends, the the mystery at the heart of Christian faith, the mystery that we approach on tiptoe together this time of year, a mystery so full of wonder and awe and beauty, we'll never do it justice, though the poets and painters and musicians come closest. This mystery of our faith is that God, the all-powerful, all-present, invisible spirit who set the universe in motion, came to where we are, became a human being. God became flesh, became it, didn't just wear it for a little while like a bathrobe, but stepped into body, the muscle, the bones, the limits of an earthbound human life. In the person of Jesus Christ, God has come to the place where we really are for the sake of calling our names. We have a word for what God did. I know you know the word incarnation, from the Latin root carne, which means flesh. It means our bodies, our bones, our connective tissue, our blood, our muscle, skin. This word is all about our humanness, and our humanness is precisely what God took on. God took a human name, just like you and I have. They called him in his language, Yeshua. We call him Jesus. And he was a particular height and weight. And he had a particular color of eyes and a particular blood type. He had a particular stride and his voice had a particular timbre and accent. 
He had a particular mother and father, brothers and sisters, and he lived in a particular town and had a particular circle of friends. And he walked around in an ordinary body on this ordinary earth, just like you and me. And this was the incarnation. God with us. God with skin on. And what a gift this was because we desperately needed a face for God, needed to hear the message of God in ways that our minds and hearts could understand. But there's another gift that comes with with incarnation. The story of God putting on flesh isn't just about what God became. It's also about what we can become, what we are meant to become. And in our text this morning, the one that Elisa read a moment or two ago from Philippians, you can see that Paul gets it. Drawing from what was probably an early hymn, the text of a hymn, a worship song that the early Christians sang, Paul says, and this is a slightly different rendering from uh, Eugene Peterson, think of yourselves, this is Paul, think of yourselves the way Christ Jesus thought of himself. When the time came, he set aside the privileges of deity and took on the status of a slave, became human. Having become human, he stayed human. It was an incredibly humbling process. He didn't claim special privileges. Instead, he lived a selfless, obedient life and then died a selfless, obedient death. In other words... God could have lived above it all. God could have remained. Spirit could have stayed perfectly, beautifully transcendent. Instead, God chose to come all the way down into the messiness, into the imperfect relationships, down into the complicated commitments of a real human life. And I think that part of what incarnation is trying to say to us is that because God chose presence, we can choose to be present too. We don't have to be afraid of getting close to God or close to the flesh and blood people around us. Jeffrey Cuse, who's a theology professor at Seattle Pacific University, claims that it's possible to read the entire Christian story as one question, a question that begins in Genesis and one that human beings have been trying to respond to ever since. It's the the primal question found in the heart of Eden, the question God asks in Genesis 3 and continues to ask today, where are you? But see, with God, location always has to do more with personhood than with place. With God, where are you almost always refers to relationship. In the Old Testament, two crucial Hebrew words show up that mean where. One is the word po. Po refers to physical location. I am here. But the other word... Hineni means here I am. And that one is a statement of availability for intimacy and for relationship. 
If you read the Old Testament in Hebrew, you see that God says hineni again and again, this assurance of presence, as if to say, even in a place of sadness and torment, do you understand that I am with you? And people in the Bible say it as well. When God calls out to Moses from the burning bush, Moses replies, hineni, here I am. When God calls out to Samuel, finally the boy understands and says, Hineni, I'm here, I'm listening. And so for God, for whom location always means relationship, he comes asking, are you located relationally with me in what you do and say? Are you asking your questions of me from a distance or from a place of closeness and vulnerability? And are you willing to get close and vulnerable with the people around you? This idea of getting close to God or to anyone, really, may be a dying art in the Western world. I was reading just this week about a phenomenon described by an MIT psychologist, Sherry Turkle, called tethering. I want you to imagine that you step onto a metro train one morning and wind up wedged between two people you've never seen before. Bodily, you may be in very close proximity to them, which gives this initial sense of closeness. But as you pull out your smartphone and start texting and surfing, and as the strangers next to you do the same... This distance emerges between you and the people on either side. From this moment, you've become thousands of miles apart from them psychologically and spiritually, just as they've become from you. Your elbow might be pressed against his ribs, and the scent of her shampoo may be wafting into your nostrils. But online, you're texting a friend across town, while one of your seatmates is doing a status update in his Instagram story, and the other is lobbing political grenades on a polarizing social media comment stream with a third cousin in Denver. And so this phenomenon of close but far is what Turkle calls the tethered self. She says it's as though our real self is tethered to the social media stratosphere and we're pulled away and distanced from those who are in close proximity to us at a given moment. Basically, it's as though we're living in multiple locations at the same time and fully present in none of them. Here's the thing. There is no stand-in for presence. There is no substitute for real, live flesh and blood. You may receive dozens of letters, flowers, and candy from the one you love who lives across the country, but all those things pale by comparison to the moment when that person is standing on your front porch reaching for you. Or you can see all the pictures in the world of that grandbaby, but when she is finally in your lap with that little hand pressed to your cheek, her eyes fixed on yours, and that sweet breath in your face. That's the real thing. I love music, all, all kinds of music, including great choral music. And of course, at Christmas time, there are countless recordings I can listen to, and I do. But every year, 
I have to take in at least one live Christmas concert, like the one we're offering here next Sunday at 4 p.m. here in the sanctuary, free to the public. Why do I have to do this every year? Because, friends, I am hooked on incarnation. I especially love university choirs. When we lived in Waco, we always attended the Baylor Christmas concert. It's happening this weekend, actually. In Atlanta, it was Emory's Lessons and Carols and, oh my goodness, the annual Morehouse and Spellman concert, which as far as I'm concerned is just a warm-up for heaven. You have not heard, go tell it on the mountain that Jesus Christ is born till you've heard it from a freshman with cornrows in his hair and braces on his teeth. And I remember wanting to stand up and cheer as I watched a young woman in her formal black dress with chacos on her feet and a sun and moon tattoo on her neck, beaming as she sang, Quitolis Pecata Mundi, you take away the sins of the world. There is no substitute for presence. As the bread and the cup remind us this morning on this table. Friends, once when the world was so utterly bleak and dark. And you and I had no hope of fixing ourselves or saving ourselves. You know what God said? God said, I am not going to give another law. I'm not going to show up in another rainbow or fiery pillar I'm going to be present with them in a flesh and blood life that they can see and touch and know. And what's more, brothers and sisters, in Christ, God is saying, you be present. Be present for your one wild and precious life, as Mary Oliver puts it. And what you'll discover is that the sacred is down here where it is messy and physical and complicated, down here with the real imperfect up-in-your-face people who live under your roof, down here with your actual neighbors and co-workers and friends, down here in the boardrooms and classrooms and waiting rooms. In all of these, the beloved is present. And so we can be too fully and unafraid. And that sounds like awfully good news to me. And so, loving God, thank you for coming to where we are. Thank you for being present with us. And so teach us to be present with you and with the people in our lives. In Christ, we ask it. Amen.